0: Well, I'm Mike Taylor, and my sweet wife Myra's on the front row here. Keep an eye on me. And we serve here at Mission Point, helping teach kids, teaching adults. And I work with your elders on the elder board. And uh, for the last month, since Kondo asked me to speak today, to be the last guy to speak on the book of Proverbs, I've asked God to give me a lot of wisdom in what I say to you today. That you would hear God and not me. I think that's possible. And that there would be successful application of this message in your life. I realize that most of what I say you'll forget by the time you walk out the door. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible that something will penetrate your heart that will change your life today. I've so benefited from this book right here called the Bible and from the wisdom of people around me that that's what I want to do today, is share that with you. You know, James says that our life is a mist. It's here and it's gone. Job says that our life is like a breath of air. And David, who wrote Psalms, says that we're like a whiff of smoke that passes away. First Lady Bush, at the age of 92, passed away this week. I would imagine if you talked to her husband and her kids and grandkids, they would say her life was here and it was gone. It's hard to believe she's gone. And did you hear what her granddaughters read yesterday at her memorial? Proverbs 31. It's pretty amazing. So if you're young, you don't believe what I just said. Life is just like that. But if you're old... Like me, old people out there, you agree? It is. It's passing really fast. So here in a couple of weeks, I'll be 61. I'm passing the 60 mark. And you know you're 61 when your wife says, Hey, dude, suck in your gut and you get a hernia trying to do it. <laughs> you know you're 61 when you laugh so hard that your tears run down your leg. <laughs> ah, the old people got that especially you women that have had multiple babies you got that one <laughs> Psalm 71:18 is the better reason to grow old This is why I spent the last 3 weeks studying my head off for this 30 minutes because God even in my old age and in my gray hairs don't forsake me until I proclaim your truths from this book to the next generation and your power to all those who are going to come after me. Because this is where it's at. Do you realize that this book has 66 books in it? Do you realize that 40 different people helped write this book? Three languages, three continents, 1,500 years. But it had one author, and that was the Spirit of God. Paul said to Timothy, God breathed, These scriptures. We believe that these are inspired by God. It's the idea that a boat is in the ocean being pushed along by the waves. It's not a rudderless boat because we see the qualities of Peter and Paul and others who wrote wasn't rudderless. They had their ideas and their concepts, but they were directed by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's really amazing. Ten years before I was born, 11 caves revealed 1,100 manuscripts called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are a 1,000 years older than the Masoretic text which gave us our Old Testament. And do you know that they were 99.5% accurate with the Old Testament that we have? The only difference is that 0.5% was a few spelling errors, but nothing to do with the content. So, This is a book we can believe in, and this book has one word in it 234 times. It's the word wisdom, and in the book we've been studying, Proverbs, it is 46 times. There's only 915 verses, and 46 of them contain the word wise. What does it mean to be wise? There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is facts. It's information. We live in an information overload world. You can get facts just like that. Anything you want to know. Boom. Google. You got it. But the understanding of those facts and the application of those is what wisdom is. And that's what I want to talk to you about today is how can we get wisdom from this book? I believe wisdom is common sense. Knowledge is book sense. So if you're a police officer, a teacher, a medical worker, work at Depew, your stay-at-home mom, there's a lot of difference between knowing stuff and applying stuff. So recently, someone in our family was stopped by a policeman here in town. I won't divulge his name. I have four daughters. And, um, you know, when he pulled that guy over, um, you know, the two or three minor traffic offenses, that he had just committed in front of the police officer. Boy, that wasn't very bright. It was right behind me. As he pulled me over into the Lake City parking lot, this is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. He knew that I had committed an offense. And the law says when you do this, 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 this and this, you should get a fine. But I think when he saw my hand trembling with my registration and license and he saw my pale face and the sweat and he'd already done a background search on me and realized I hadn't had a ticket in 40 years. He decided instead to give me a verbal warning and when I came home and confessed to my wife what stupidity I had just done in a Lake, I said and I wrote a letter to that police officer, I believe I learned more from you in the way you handled me and it will impact my driving over the next four to five years because you used wisdom in the way that you managed me. This is what Solomon asked for. God said to him, you can have anything you want. What is it you want? Is it not amazing that he said, I want an understanding mind. I want wisdom. I want to govern your people. I want to know the difference between good and evil. And what did God do? God said, I'm going to give you wisdom like no one who's ever come before you or anyone who will come after you. You will be the wisest man that ever lives on the face of this earth, with the exception of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because you weren't selfish in your request, I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you a very long life if you'll honor my word. And I'm going to give you wisdom like no man has ever had on the face of this earth. Well, his life certainly demonstrated that, at least early on. He wrote Proverbs, which we've studied for five weeks. He wrote the Song of Solomon, which is a story of how to have a good marriage. And he wrote Ecclesiastes. He was a king for 40 years. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Only a third of them are found in the book of Proverbs. He wrote a 1,000 songs it says in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he was an expert in birds, animals, reptiles, and plant life. That all of the kings in the region sent their wise people to sit under Solomon because he was so smart. In today's dollars, his net worth was 2.1 trillion dollars. Do you realize that his people brought 29 tons of gold to him every year as a tax? That alone was phenomenal. God gave him everything. Have you ever wondered why he asked for that? You have a genie in the bottle and you can rub it and ask for anything you want. What would you ask for? Well, here's why I believe he asked for wisdom. I think there was something inherently smart about this guy in his 30s because that's about when he acquired the throne. But he also was the son of King David, a dynasty of 40 years. Can you imagine sitting around the fire talking to your dad, David? And he says, yes, son, I started out, I was just a shepherd boy. I was out watching sheep on the hillside. Yes, remember the Masoretic text says this is 99.5% accurate. Yes, I killed a lion with my hands. It says he grabbed him by the mane and clubbed him. The Maasai are the only people that kill lions with their hands. Everybody else uses guns at 200 yards. He killed a bear. And then can you imagine your dad telling you the story of Goliath? That he slew this giant with a slingshot and chopped his head off. And the Philistines ran away. But then can you imagine your father or hearing your brothers talk about That your mother had an adulterous relationship with your father and your father had her husband killed. His name was Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. Can you imagine being the brother of Amnon who had an incestuous relationship with his sister Tamar against her will? And two years later, Absalom, yet another brother, kills Amnon because he's so mad at what he did to their sister. And then that brother Absalom revolts against his father, is hung in a tree by his beautiful hair and speared to death. Can you imagine what this young man had seen and heard in his lifetime? And I believe he knew that he needed wisdom to perpetuate the good that he had grown up with and to avoid the evil that he had seen in his own family. And you see that's one of the beautiful things about our Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat everything it tells us the real deal it's messy at times and this guy grew up in a very messy environment well after a month of gleaning through this book reading it I typed every word into my every passage into my computer that had the word wisdom in it I've listened to podcasts myra's passed all kinds of stuff on to me I've read some books I've come up with three critical principles that I think we need if we want to have this wisdom in our life. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says the following, we must have the fear of God in our life because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of getting information. Now fear of God is not scared. I'm not scared of God. I am not afraid of Him. But fear of God, as Charles Stanley says, is an attitude that acknowledges your dependence, absolute dependence upon God for everything. Moses said in Deuteronomy, when you get to the promised land, God said this to Moses, do not forget, it is I who gives you the ability to gain wealth. If you're a hotshot, white-collar, worker making a ton of money right now, don't have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in the fact that it's our great God that allowed us to live in a great country, which gives us a great ability to gain wealth. Martin Luther calls it filial fear. I had never heard of this concept before. It's the fear that a child has of their parent. Now, I have two of my four daughters sitting next to Myra right here on the front row, And I hope that they would say to you, they've never been afraid of me. There are times in the early days where they got their little booty spanked, where they might have been scared at the moment. But I hope that they had the same filial fear that Martin Luther talks about. And that is, I love mom and dad so much, and I want to please them so much that I don't want to disappoint them. That's what fearing God is. Fearing God is this deep reverence and respect. For the God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. You know, I grew up saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I grew up in the South. My father was from Alabama. My mother was from Alabama. You said, sir, you said, ma'am. If you didn't, you got disciplined. Aunts and uncles required it. Grandparents required it. Something was instilled in me early on about reverence of adults and reverence of People with wisdom and God himself. Do you have a healthy fear and respect of God? Do you have that? Do you have a real desire in your heart that you want to please God? You deeply want to please him. Something about respectful people. I was thinking about this. I work at Medstat and I worked yesterday and I was just thinking about this from patient to patient. And just how some people are naturally kind and respectful. And I thought, you know, those are the people that just seem to get ahead in life. And Solomon knew that. That we need to have this deep reverence and love for our God. Here's the second thing I I gleaned. We have to be attentive to God's voice. We have to actively listen. Listen. Hmm. I know what you're saying. He's 61. He forgot what he was going to say next. (laughs) No. Meyer and I have spent the last 29 years working in Africa. And in the African culture, when you're in a setting and you ask a question, there's often anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute of absolute silence. It is rare that anyone responds like that and it's usually the oldest man that responds before the younger guys respond even if the young guys are more educated wisdom is crying out to you today wisdom wants you to listen and we have to have an attentive ear to God's voice proverbs 120 through 21 says the following listen to this phenomenal verse Wisdom is crying in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she's crying out. At the entrance of the city gates, she's speaking. And Proverbs 8 says, doesn't wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? And in that first chapter, Solomon says, I've called you. Wisdom has called and called, but you refused to listen. Do you remember the videos that we have at the beginning of church? Every single one of them had the same phrase on it. You remember this phrase? Or were you so fascinated with Hunter's response? Here's the phrase. Sometimes it is the simplest and most straightforward truths that our frantic and fast-paced hearts need to hear. If there's one thing about my country, about my culture, because we work in multiple cultures, we work in Africa. We work in Haiti, where these cultures are diametrically opposed to this culture, is that we are frantic and we are fast-paced. When I was a kid at Grace and you walked from class, you talked to people. I comment to my wife every day, when we, when we pass Grace, people have their phones. It's just data, data, data pounding into our heads. When can we sit and just listen to the voice of God? The word ear or ears appears so many times in the book of Proverbs. Solomon knew the importance of this piece of anatomy. God gave us two of them. And he uses the word to incline, which means to pay close attention, to heed, to obey, to be attentive. In Proverbs 4 and in Proverbs 5, he says the following, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Incline your ear and hear these words, and apply your heart to my knowledge. Now, this is my favorite part of the message because I love human anatomy. I spend all day long, I'm a PA in urgent care, I've been doing it since 1981, and I am constantly trying to figure out what's wrong with you. That's what I'm constantly trying to do. And so I have brought a very high-tech prop today. This is what happens when you turn 60. You forget about PowerPoint and all that. This is my prop, okay? Can you see it? It's a penny, it's a dime, and it's a button. A penny, a dime, and a button if you have ever entertained evolution please stop today when you hear just this little section if you use these raise your hand Q-tip oh my goodness I'm gonna give you some free medical advice don't ever put that in your ear again I've never had one of these in my ear and I was thinking last night I was in my study by myself and I go Maybe that's why Myra's always telling me, I can't hear anything because I need to clean my ears. <laughs> but you don't need to clean your ears. These don't clean your ears. Do you know that? Your ear isn't dirty. My favorite thing is when they bring a five-year-old in from Jefferson, his name's Bill, and Bill says, Robert threw a rock in my ear we know Bill stuck the rock in his ear. Why? Look at your ear. You got the pinna, you got the helix, you got the tragus right here. See that little thing that sticks out? That you girls are putting piercings in now. The little thing that sticks out, of the tragus. It occludes your external canal so nothing can go in except what? Sound waves. Well, at the end of your ear canal, the size of a dime is your tympanic membrane, which is called the eardrum. Size of a dime. And on the inside of your eardrum are three of the smallest, they are the smallest bones in your body. They're called ossicles. The hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. They're so small that they put side by side, they fit on a penny. And they are lined up side by side in your ear. Here's what you're not going to believe. The cochlea, all right, that's your hearing organ. It looks like a snail or a, a shell. It will fit on a button. Solomon knew all this. He knew that God designed these ears. Do you realize that when you're hearing me, my voice, when it goes through your external canal, by the time it hits your eardrum, it has amplified 20 times without an amplifier. Just because of the anatomy. When we want to look in your ear with a otoscope, we have to take your helix and pick up on it a little bit. Because we have to get your ear canal straight to be able to see your eardrum. So right now, as I'm talking, those sound waves are hitting your eardrum. It's going like that. It hits those three little ossicles. They vibrate and those ossicles then hit your cochlea and the cochlea begins playing the piano, okay? How many keys on the piano? 88. You have an organ in the middle of your ear called the organ of Corti. It has 20,000 keys. Each key has 100 hair cells. So you guys going bald? You got two million hair cells, hair cells in your ear. <laughs> Isn't that great? God put them there. So just, you know, have peace tonight when you look at your bald head. Hey, I got 20 million, 2 million in there. And so when that hits your ear, it just sends those little things vibrating all over and it touches your osseous nerve and your otic nerve and it goes straight to your brain and you hear everything that I'm saying. It's an amazing creation, but we have to take advantage of that creation if we're going to hear the voice of God and understand wisdom. So, one of the things I did in preparation for this 30-minute message was I bought a book called Whisper, How to Hear the Voice of God. It's written by Mark Batterson. This guy's fantastic. Google him, get his books. Great. He's a pastor of National Community Church. And I want to read something to you that he says right in the beginning of his book. 50 years ago in Paris, France a doctor by the name of Tomatis. Dr. Tomatis was confronted with the most confounding patient in his 50-year history as an otolaryngologist, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. A renowned opera singer came to him and could no longer hit certain notes, but they were well within his range. And so as he studied the opera singer, he determined that they produce 140 decibels of sound, guess what produces 140 decibels when it takes off? A jet. And that 140 decibels was ringing in this opera singer's head, so it was probably even louder than 140 decibels. And the discovery led to a diagnosis that the opera singer had been deafened by the sound of his own voice. Man, we talk a lot in this culture. The voice can only reproduce what it can hear. You want to reproduce God talk? You better hear God talk. Could we possibly be suffering from a spiritual tomatus effect in our culture today? It is possible that what we perceive to be relational, emotional, and spiritual problems are actually hearing problems, ears that have been deafened to the voice of God. It is the inability to hear his voice that causes us to lose our voice and to lose our way. So that's two things. First one is we've got to fear God. We've got to have a healthy, deep respect of God. We have to be attentive to his voice. We have to use this amazing creation called ears. So yesterday as I was looking at patients, they had no idea. I was so fascinated with ears yesterday. I'm looking in there and I'm thinking, they have no idea I'm preaching on their ear tomorrow. And I saw that tympanic membrane in there and the umbo that it stretches across. And I'm just thinking, those tiny little bones are vibrating and the cochlea is picking up. And do you realize you have 20,000 hair cells in the middle of your ear? It's just so cool. But here's the last one, and this is the one that's deeply personal, and that is to write God's Word on the tablet of our heart. We have to take this wisdom, and it has to penetrate our heart. What does it mean to write God's Word on the tablet of your heart? It means to have a permanent place in your heart and in your mind where you store this information that you've heard. I'm standing here today not because I'm anything special, but I am here because of the sovereignty of God and great parents. Parents who believed in these three things that I'm saying to you right now, but they always didn't believe in these three things. Dad, Pop, we called him, was the first to hear when wisdom cried out to him. He inclined his ear to God, And I watched him incline his ear to God until the day he died. Proverbs 3 in verse 1 says, Son, don't forget my teachings. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. This stuff has to be in here. So in 2009, a couple years before my dad passed away, Meyer and I made a habit to go to South Carolina and relieve my brothers, I had two brothers and a sister-in-law there, uh, of helping take care of him because he was in the full stages of Alzheimer's and it had really ravaged his life. My dad was um, a carpenter. And he worked in South Florida where it gets 100 degrees, and he'd put in 8- and 10-hour days for 50 years. He was a big man. He was a strong man. And now he had been reduced to like a child again. You know, we had to cut food up. We had to feed him. We had to clothe him. We had to bathe him. We had to watch him. You know, with Alzheimer's patients, you often have to put locks high on the door so they can't get out of the house when they are confusion. And uh, my dad had quit talking. He, had, he was always a quiet man, but he had not talked in probably six months. He just sat there, which, as you know, severely demented and Alzheimer patients do that. Well, it was my father's habit to read Psalms and Proverbs every day his entire life. And I have a letter on my desk. I have two letters, and this one says, The most treasured gift my parents ever gave me. Now, I'm not going to reveal all the contents, but I am going to reveal just the first paragraph. And it says, Dear Mike, this is March of 2005. I'm sitting at my desk this a.m. reading my Bible. I usually read the proverb for the day and the corresponding chapter in Psalms. So here's my pop. It's a Sunday morning and I said, what? You know what? We're not talking. He's not watching TV. Why don't I just read the Bible to him? And so I got out the Bible and it was the 25th day of the month. And I started reading Proverbs chapter 25. And I got to verse 21 and I said, if your enemy is hungry, and my dad said, feed him. What? And then I said, if your enemy is thirsty, he said, son, give him a drink of water. And I thought, you're kidding me. I haven't heard my dad say a word in six months and he just quoted scripture. You know, the last thing my father quit doing when he quit talking was praying. Those are the last things he did. Listen to this chapter in this book. The spirit of man is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And even when the cortex of the brain is damaged, Alzheimer's, mentally handicapped people, severe autism, even when the cortex is damaged, the Spirit of God still communicates with us. Perhaps that is what the writer of Hebrews was saying when he said, this Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing our soul to the spirit, to the joints, and to the marrow. So I understood personally That day, what it meant to write God's Word on your heart. Because with the ravages of Alzheimer's, my dad still had it deep in his head. The Word of God. Now, this is what I'm going to close with. The story ends well, but the story started difficultly. My dad's circumstances were such that he should not have wanted to give food to an enemy nor water to somebody who was his enemy that was thirsty. Why? Pop was a typical silent generation. You know how they label us all? You know how I'm a baby boomer and those guys are silent and you guys are millennials? I think it's a bunch of baloney, but he was a silent generation. He was a bit tough. He was a very hard worker. He was frugal and he sacrificed amazingly for his four boys He was a little short on physical affection, but you knew that he loved you unconditionally. He was one of 13 kids raised in Alabama in 1924. So you know what was going on in our country in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s with the races in our country. You know what was going on. You know the South and how the South is often painted as being more racist than other parts of the country. But my, my father was born in Alabama on Sand Mountain. Now, Sand Mountain is a plateau that goes across northern Alabama and northern Georgia. And my father, not by his own choosing, was born in a sundown town. You ever heard of this? Google it. Sundown town. They still exist today. Not so much in the south, but more so in the Midwest. This is a town that when the sun set, if you were a black person... If you were a Jewish person, if you were of Asian descent, you were to be out of town before the sun set. Sand Mountain was a sun downtown. Geraldine, Alabama. Population at last census, 2,300 people. My mother told me a story which I didn't frankly believe until Google came around and I could prove it. She said, Mike, the first time I went to visit your daddy in Geraldine, Alabama, at the base of the hill, there was a sign. If you're black, Jewish, non white, off the mountain before the sun sets. And I stopped the car and I said, Gwen, I will visit your parents one time, and I will never go back if that sign is still at the bottom of the mountain. I think mom began to help dad. She was a city girl from Birmingham. And we know Birmingham was the center of civil rights movement, much of it. But you see, Pop, one of 13 kids raised in the deep south in a town that was very, very racist. He shouldn't be saying, give food to my enemy, my racial enemy. Shouldn't be giving water to my racial enemy. But I'm here to tell you, when my father met Jesus Christ, all of that changed instantaneously. Instantaneously. The bigger part of dad's life is he and four other siblings went to war, World War II. They all five went at the same time. It's an amazing story, and they all survived. My uncle Jess was hit by a kamikaze pilot, and everybody on his ship died except him and like three guys. Pop was on the USS Bogue in the North Atlantic sinking German U-boats. It has been said that the operation my father was involved in was what helped win the war, because the shipping lanes were being crippled by the Germans because of their advanced technology with U-boats. My 17-year-old pop from a little town in Alabama finds himself on the North Atlantic sinking boats full of German soldiers the same age as him. And he told me the story one time of the boat taking on some survivors from a sunken ship. And I Googled it recently and by golly, it's there. And he said, son, when I came back from the war, I basically hated everybody except those that looked like me. He said, I grew up not liking black people, and then I went to war and I grew up not liking Germans or Japanese people, and so basically I just wanted to be around people like me. But at the age of 34, something happened to my dad, and it's called salvation. He listened when wisdom cried out to him. Now, I happen to have another letter from my father. This letter is dated October the 6th of 1959. I was two years old. To show you this letter, it doesn't have a zip code. It doesn't have a street on it. It just says, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, Geraldine, Alabama. Four cent stamp. It has on the front the day that my father accepted Christ as his Savior. October the 5th of 1959, And guess who followed suit the next morning on October the 6th? My mother. And here's what he writes to his parents. He says, Mama and Papa, you will probably know that something has happened to me by me writing. (laughs) I figured he probably never wrote them. But I have to tell you my good news in person. The Lord saved me Sunday night. Do you know, I remember... In the 60s, having black people eat dinner in my home. Last week, Myra and I were in Fort Lauderdale, and we desperately tried to find my black neighbors in Fort Lauderdale, and we were off by five streets. Five years ago, my brothers and I went and visited the people who bought my parents' house. Four big, tall white guys in a completely black neighborhood, 100% African American. We got out of the car, knocked on the door, Mrs. Washington said, you must be Gwen Taylor's boys. And she began to tell us of my father's love for black people. In our neighborhood, we were the last white family to move out of that neighborhood. He listened. That change has given me life and has given me life abundantly. Meyer and I have just been talking about how amazingly blessed we are. Four daughters, three son in laws, seven grandkids, incredible job, beautiful house, wonderful schools, nice neighborhood, wonderful church. And I believe with all my heart that if you have a healthy fear of God, an active listening ear, and you write his words on your heart, here's three things. I promise these don't come true, you come tell me. You will be blessed. That means happy. Number two, you will be at peace in your heart. And number three, you will become people-focused instead of self-focused. And that's what it's all about in the Christian life. So God, thanks a lot for this time with my Mission Point family. I commit these words to you. I commit this message to you. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that something that was said today would penetrate the soul of our people here today and be applied in their life. We commit it all to you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.